Someone once wrote, most people in the world, they don't want to get rich. They just want to get richer. It's a very relative term. It means different things to different people. It simply means that what they have, they want more of. Maybe it's a farmer. He has some land, he just wants more of it. He wants just more than he already has. Maybe it's a business owner. He has a business, he just wants a bigger one, a better one. He just wants an upgrade. And by the way, as I'm talking, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm speaking against this. This is not necessarily all wrong. It can be healthy. Just bear with me. Or a worker has a paycheck, but he just wants a bigger paycheck. He wants more money. And again, it's not always sin, but it can be, and very often it is. Let's, let's face it. It doesn't matter if I have $10 in the bank or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or a million. Generally speaking, I just want a little more. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. In fact, Jesus himself tells the story of the servant who was entrusted with money. Well, actually, three servants were entrusted with money. One got five talents, one got two talents, and one got one talent. And he commanded them to serve and make it more. And two of them did. Well, they did that, and they made more. The one didn't. He got punished for not doing it. But what's interesting about the story is they did their jobs well. Although they refers to the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy. They did their jobs well. And you know what they did? They made more money. But what did they do then? They gave it back. It's my, okay, you, I, you gave me five, I made five, you get two. They got it all back. Just keep that thought back in your mind as we go through this sermon. But there's a flaw in most of us, and it's the flaw of selfishness. Let's just say it, we have the flaw of selfishness. We have that. We find it hard to give ourselves, to give of ourselves, to give stuff. We find it hard. It is so much easier to take than it is to give. It's so easy to want more instead of less. It's hard to want less. We have this craving Kids are born with it. They do it all the time. Little ones fighting amongst themselves. One has two toys. One has one. The other one, he still wants the one more, so he has three. He doesn't care if the other one has none. We're born with this trait. That's our inherited sin nature. I know we live in a day and age when there's so-called minimalists, and I don't really understand that. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just reality. Someday, I just want to be a minimalist. Just the very basic minimum, that's all I want. And that's not necessarily wrong either. Unless this person I just want to smooch off everybody else, I don't want a house. I'll just come and live in your house. Still the same problem. It can be bad. They want the plenty of others without actually working for it. It's just another form of selfishness. But the Bible commands us to be generous. And I want to not just focus on the outward Generous meaning the wallet, it's there. We're going to talk about it. So we're going to tie a lot of stuff in here this morning. So we'll see how far we get in 35 minutes or so. The Bible commands us to be generous. It's a command of God. Today we're going to ask ourselves, when it comes to the things of this world, what is inside here in the heart? When it comes to the matter of giving, how far do I go? How far am I willing to go? Or how far do I want to go? 
For the next two Sundays, we want to wrestle with this con- concept, this topic, this idea. What is God's response to a people group who become greedy, selfish, and possessive with the things God has blessed them with still claiming we are God's children? That happened. Our sermon text this morning will focus, and next Sunday will focus on the book of Malachi. And I was wrestling with this some months ago as I was preparing the sermon calendar for today and for tomorrow. Like, I do this months in advance. And so as I was preparing this, and I was thinking, how do I break up this passage of four sermons into the right amount of sermons to properly work this through? And the best would be to do one four-hour sermon. That would be the best. But I'm sure I couldn't get anybody to stay that long. I know it wouldn't work. You want to go for lunch in between, I don't blame you. But that would be the best way to do it. So I was, I was wrestling with this and I figured, you know what, the best I can probably do, I figured, and so this thought, um, the thought of four hour sermon came to me this, this, this weekend. But when I was going over this early on in, in the early months of the year, I mean, last year actually, when I was preparing this, I was thinking, the best I can probably do is try to make two sermons out of it and, and explain it the best I can in a condensed form and still apply the truth of this to our lives. So let's see how this goes. This book is so interwoven with so many different strands of thought into so many areas of life, it really can only best be presented as one whole concept because it's all tangled up. It's one tangled mess. But it's very applicable to us today in our social situation, our spiritual situation, even us as a community, in fact. You see, the people of Israel, they had the same nature as we do. They had the same problems, the same battles they faced that we do. Oh, yes, the times were different, the technology was different, but really the hearts were exactly the same as our hearts are today. There was one main difference. That was, they were not under grace as you and I are. They had to keep the law. You sacrifice this much this time and here and there, and you do it exactly this way. It's all prescribed, all laid out. You better do it or else. And Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, The Father wants people to worship in spirit and truth, and that's the kind of worshipers he wants. It really doesn't matter, the outward stuff, but he still wants the heart. He still wants the whole person. In the Old Testament, it was prescribed differently, but here it's in the New Testament, it's prescribed one. But we want to look at the Old Testament today and see how it's prescribed there. God had promised them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. He was going to bless them, protect them, make them a blessing to others. And there was material, physical, tangible blessings, political blessings, um, crops, and so on. But there were some conditions that applied. By the way, just an interruption here, just so you know, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not a guy who believes that if you do everything right, God's going to spare you suffering. No. People who live right generally have a better life. That's true. But people who live for God will suffer, will suffer just like last Sunday. Those Christians that got attacked in those churches, 350 currently are, are dead. But the whole point being, if we live our lives according to God's principles, we'll have peace in our hearts, we'll have joy in relationship with God, and and in that sense, things will go better. So with that said, I want to just briefly go back into the Old Testament, even some some passages earlier, and just see what the the Old Testament has to say about what God is expecting. Is that PowerPoint working? Okay. See, God commanded us to give. He didn't just suggest giving. He commanded it. He didn't recommend it. He commanded it. He commanded people to be generous. By the way, just as a side note, do you know that generous people, just basically Christian or non-Christian, 
are healthier than non-generous people? There's actually a physical benefit to generosity. There's proof of that. But that's not part of the sermon today. We don't have time to read all the passages that we could read, but I want to, to, to uh, go into a few of them. Let's really read Leviticus chapter 27, beginning verse 30. It says, One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to Him as holy. If you want to buy back the Lord's tenth of the grain or fruit, you must pay its value plus 20%. Count off every tenth animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. Let's stop there. Basically, God commanded them back in the old days and under the days of Moses, okay, you have to give to the temple worship, to the priests, to the Levites, 10% of what you produce. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you need it so bad that you feel, okay, I can't spare that cheap or I can't spare that part of the crop, then you can buy it back, but you have to add 20%. Now it's going to cost you more even. So it was, not just give it. It was better to give. So there was, there was, it was not so much a financial situation as it was, um, it was a, it was a economic situation. They had to give the product, the produce, the fruits and whatnot, not so much writing a check. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning verse 5. It says, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among all the tribes, the place where his name will be honored. There you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary giving offerings, and your offerings of the firstborn of animals and of your herds and flocks. What's left over, huh? There you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God and you will rejoice in all you've accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. In case someone thinks this is a drudgery and it's just a tax, they benefited from this too. It was not just about, okay, we were losing everything. It was also a celebration. Let's also read Deuteronomy 14. Let's read what we're reading here. Deuteronomy 14 verse 22. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year during this. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship and place the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored and eat it there in his presence. So here they get the benefit. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. This giving, 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 giving must be tiresome to be a early Israelite back in the days of Moses and on, right? Well, let's continue. Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your town so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your great, in all your work. There's again, these things were commanded to them as a nation. By now we're just saying, boy, are we glad we're not there or that. This was a, a political situation, I mean, a, a spiritual situation, but they were also a political nations, so they were their own country. This was part of the taxation system and everything they had. But the reality was they were giving a very vital part of their whole existence as a nation. God had built this into the system of worship, this component of giving, and there's a command for them for the benefit of everybody. The bottom line was, God told his people they were supposed to give of their income, of their, of their harvest, and whatever they got for a variety of reasons. Whether it's a firstborn, the tithe, other offerings, volunteer giving, and, and so on. And it had to do for, do for a variety of things, support the poor, the priests, they had no, they had no income because they didn't have land. 
They could even give more if they wanted to. But the law was there to keep things in balance, to keep things the way they should be. But then we read on. We just read some Old Testament stuff in the early parts of the books of Moses. Then we read on in First and Second Samuel. We read First and Second Kings. We read the books of the prophets. And we find this was disregarded. They went their own ways and just wouldn't do it. And repeatedly God warned them of their shortcomings. And there was other things that God warned them about. There was idol worship and there was dis- neglect and disrespect and all those things. And eventually... The northern tribes of Israel, they lost their land. Later, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin lost their land. And so they were all in captivity. After 70 years of of captivity, the southern kingdom was allowed to come back again. And they were a land again. They were a country again, a nation again, uh, worshiping God. They had rebuilt the temple. And they were now again a nation. And this is where it gets interesting for us because now we're going to go into the book of Malachi. They were again sliding. They were they're backsliding. They were again becoming careless, greedy, and self-absorbed. And they were disregarding those rules that God had given to Moses. They had lost their zeal and their passion. So they just did what came easy, natural, the least resistance, just as people do today. So with that, let's begin reading Malachi. We'll do quite a bit of reading this morning. Malachi chapter 1, beginning verse 1. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? The Lord replied, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, and I rejected his brother Esau, and I devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance to a desert for jackals. Verse 4. Esau's descendants and Edom may say, we have been shattered, we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness, and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. Some translations actually say that Esau have I hated. And so God did reject the nation of Esau, the descendants of Esau, as far as the nation goes. One writer put it this way, he said, you know, he said, I got a problem with that. Why would God say something like that? What did Esau do wrong? A responder to that said this. He says, yeah, he says, I see it. He said, but it, it's not what bothers me or not what I'm worried about or what, what, what puzzles me, what, what I think is interesting. He said, what's interesting is far more that God took any of them. That God, he, he didn't accept Esau, but he accepted Jacob. And that's a far greater surprise than that, the fact that he accepted anybody at all. We do have a verse in the Old Testament in the books of Moses where God simply says to Israel, I did not choose you because you're such a great nation, because you're so special. You're so No, I choose you because I decided to choose you. And there's an important lesson here. And Israel somehow had this concept, this idea, we're good, we're good people, and God, God owes us, we're good people. God says that's not true. God in the sovereign will decides who he's going to use for what purpose in what way in this world. We don't choose that he does. Let's continue reading verse 6, Malachi 1. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You've shown contempt for my name. But yes, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. 
Verse 8. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But you bring, when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asks the Lord of heaven's armies. When we read a passage like this and look at our time today, we have to pause and ask, what has changed? And the answer is nothing. Nothing's changed. People are out for themselves, back then and today still. The problem was they were making compromises in their worship of God, disregarding his instructions. They were not following his laws anymore, like they were told to. It's my way, the easy way, shortcuts. I don't care what the word says, I'll do it my way. God outright says he's not being honored. That's a hard saying. And the reason he says he's not being honored is because of the way they treat his worship, the worship ceremony. They're worshiping him outwardly, kind of. But it's just a duty, it's a chore. The real worship of the heart is not happening. They're not doing it from the heart. They're giving to God's work, uh, sacrificing, but it's... Not even their, their governor would be happy with their kind of worship. Let me just be honest here for a moment. Do we do that sometimes? This mentality, oh, it's good enough already. I really struggle with that because it's my weakness too. Maybe there's a time and place we can say to somebody, oh, it's good enough. You, you did good enough here. It's good enough. That maybe there's a place and time, but just imagine this for a moment. If the way you and I serve, if that was the way we would be served, would it be good enough then? Let me explain. Stories told of a man who was given a job. He was a carpenter to build a house. Some of you can relate to this. He was a builder. So he built this house that his boss told him to build, the blueprints and everything, the supplies, material. He was a builder. And he was working for a boss and who gave him the supplies, the resource, the material, and the lot, everything. Okay, I want you to build a house here. He built the house. But it wasn't for him. It's for his boss, so he took shortcuts. The easy way. Kind of careless in some ways, neglected, covered this mistake, and didn't worry about that, and didn't do as good of a job as he could have, and just, just get it done, just get it done. Finally, the house is done. The boss comes over, looks at the house, says, here's the key, it's your house. Now you can live in it. What? Then he started thinking, uh-oh, what did I just do? He had not done his best. Far from it. Now he so wished he had not taken this shortcut or that shortcut. But the house was done. You see, folks, the time will come when we will be finished worshiping God. Then the rewards will come. Will we be happy with what those rewards produce? My emphasis here is not to be flawless and perfect, but it should be at the least genuine. Whether it is serving, whether it's giving, whatever it is, it should be about doing our best. You see, these folks, they're offering animals that not even the governor would accept. The crippled, the blind, the lame, what they couldn't sell on the market. Insulting God. God didn't need any animals for that matter. The truth was they needed to give their best in order to receive the blessing in their heart what God wanted to give them. 
In reality, they were robbing God. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Let me just say this. We never give because God needs my gifts or our gifts. We give so we can experience the relationship. We need to give so we can grow. And that's how we grow. It's like this. When I donate money to a cause, it's not primarily about helping out at that cause, that organization that needs the money. No, I donate because I need to give. As long as my giving, oh, I guess I should maybe give. Ah, oh, they're asking for money. I'll never meet all the needs in the world. God's not asking me to give to every need that's out there. He's asking me to contribute, not because they need, but because I need this opportunity to give. Our giving is not primarily for the organization or for the poor. It is primarily about my relationship with God. And honestly, that's where it breaks down. The people of that day had gotten spiritually lazy and careless. Does that ring a bell? In verse 10, God says something about that and something we don't like. But let's read it anyway. No pastor wants to read this, but let's hear it. Verse 10, how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. I will not accept your offerings. Who would like to be a member of that church? That was written to the people of Israel. That hurts. No pastor wants to hear that. But it was not without reason that the prophet wrote that. The church in North America is slipping and sliding into moral relativity, into false teachings, into moral compromise like never before. And so many just go with the flow. For these people, giving had become a chore, a duty, a side thing, to take or leave. They lost respect for the worship, and it showed. And he says, your governor wouldn't be happy with that. Let me ask you. Would your boss be happy with you if he came to work like you come to church? If you are steady at work as you're at church, would your boss be happy? These are hard questions. We have to ask ourselves them. Am I as, would, would I be as committed in another situation? Once it's for me for my money, oh, then it's serious. Oh, once it's about, ah, giving, I don't really care. If the heart goes out of worship, then the worship is meaningless and empty and God will not accept it. Any marriage relationship that tries that doesn't work. What would we do even if before we could come to church, before we could even enter the doors of the service, God would say, wait, let's do a heart examination. Unless your heart is right with me, you can't get in. What would happen? If our worship depended on perfection, all of us would be rejected. That's why I'm so thankful for grace. And I want to weave that in here. We are under grace. And let's not forget that. Let's not think we have to be perfect. But there is so much fake worship. How can you tell if your worship is God-focused? I cannot do that, but God can. You and your heart know that. For the people of that day, they were warned. It was time to repent. And the message holds true today. 
But then verse 11, God focuses outward. He says, verse 11, But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure, offer, pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you're saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. He's saying the pagans, the other nations, they're doing a better job than you guys are. He's telling his own people. Because they have the knowledge, they have the training, they have the education, they have the resources, and they're not doing it. Let's continue on, verse 13. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord. You turn up your noses at my command, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord? Curses the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Heavy, heavy words. You see, God does not have to use me or you. He can use others. And I think I can say this with a good amount of certainty. The church in North America, as we know it, its days are numbered. Church in China and in Asia, those countries, they will, they have surpassed us in many ways already. And we should ask ourselves this question. Why should God allow the church in North America to continue? Let's bring it home. Why should God allow LEMC to continue? If it was a court case and God said, give me one reason, well, LEMC should continue. What would we say? Oh, but we're making such a difference. We're preaching the gospel. We're giving to the poor. We're doing missions. Really? And the fact that this is repeated here in the book of Malachi means it's important. God actually pronounces a curse on these people. Cursed is the cheat who promised to give a ram from his flock but doesn't do it. A lot of people make commitments. Oh, I've I've committed my life to Christ, so how's it going? Well, there's no evidence. Happens all the time. God wants to use his church to show the world his love, compassion, mercy, and blessings. And the church is instead running after the world. God wants to use us to show the world his glory by our lifestyle. So many are refusing. It gets worse. Let's go to chapter 2. It gets worse. Malachi 2, beginning verse 1. Listen, you priests, this command is from for you. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you've not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifice, and I will, show, I will throw you in the manure pile. How's that for encouragement? He's talking to the pastors. The salaries you receive, the gifts you receive, I'm going to curse that. I already have, he says. Because of the way you run the, run the ministry. Verse 4. Then at last you will know it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace. And that's what I gave them. This required reverence from them. And they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many lives from sin. That was the history. That was the starting point. That was the journey they had been on. But, go to verse 7. 
The words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God, and people should go to him for instruction, for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's army. So far, so good, but now it gets bad. Verse 8. But you priests have left God's paths. You pastors have left the righteous ways. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, saying the Lord of heavens, says the Lord of heaven's armies. I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people, for you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Here he's talking to the religious leaders. They're compromisers. They're not real. They follow the path of least resistance. It's okay. It's not a problem. As depressing as this is, he's speaking the truth. There was so much wrong on so many levels. And it's very troubling. And God brings it home to the leaders. Let me just go back to verse 8 again. The next slide, verse 8. But you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I've made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. Let's stop there. I read recently what's happening in North America. And there was a point in time when the church had a certain amount of recognition, acceptance, maybe reverence, because people respected the faith. But that has shifted. No more, no longer do people do that. We live in a time when it's, be, it's almost, it's not quite yet, but almost an embarrassment to say I'm a pastor. It shuts conversation down instantly. People don't know what to do with that. Because people just know So many pastors have no moral frame of reference. As the saying goes, history repeats itself. Looking at this passage, looking at our history, it is true. In our country, the situation that we face, more and more pastors do not stand up for the moral foundation anymore. So culture shifts, they shift. Culture shifts, they shift. Culture shifts, they shift. There's no end. Instead of them influencing culture, culture influences them. We just take our cues from culture from the community, from what people may think and say. Note how bad it was, and then compare it with today. The prophet's not finished. He's not done. He goes on. Now he's starting to untangle. He's peeling back the layers of the onion, so to speak. Now he's looking at the inner, the, the nitty-gritty, the inner, and it gets very ugly. It's gross. It's detestable. But he's, he's digging, and he's uncovering one thing after another. And it, it, it's, it's horrible, but let's keep going. These are people of God worshiping in the temple. Look what's happening in verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who's done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. This is heart-sinking, knee-buckling stuff that's going on here. You see, these guys live double lives, immoral on the weekdays, and the Sabbath day worshiping in the temple. It's all okay. It's all right. It doesn't matter. We can do both. You know what Paul says to people like that? Their condemnation is deserved. They're trying to do both. He pronounces a curse on that kind of living. Verse 13, here is another thing you do, he says. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them in with pleasure. You cried, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Get this, they're serious about this. A lot of emotions going on, a lot of energies going on. They have great performances in their worship. They're wondering, why is it so empty? 
How blind can they get? Notice what he says next. He says, I'll tell you why, because the Lord witnessed the the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? Body and spirit, you're his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Okay, wait a minute. You talked about giving. What's this? This all ties in. Who are you giving yourself to? What are you giving yourself to? Get this. These people actually believed it was okay to violate God's holy moral principles on, on any which way they wanted to and still expect God was going to bless them. It's the epitome of idolatry and selfishness. These people were just jolly well doing what they wanted and then wondering, why is the worship not working out? Well, we made our appearance in the temple, brought my gift. Sure, it was a crippled one, but hey, brought my gift. With hearts full of selfish, immoral living and stingy giving and all of that, they still expect a blessing. Greed and selfishness and adultery is the order of the day and wondering why is the things the way they are. God says, I hate divorce. Jesus himself takes that, takes God's side on this issue and just read the Gospels. I want to be careful here because we don't live under the laws those people did. But this is a whole other sermon series on its own. We live under grace, but that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want with God's commandments. Just remember this. Jesus never lowered the standard. He always raised it in every which way. You can never honor God by directly, intentionally neglecting, ignoring what he's commanded or forbidden. The men of Judah had adopted the more immoral ways of the world around them, but kept the temple worship, at least to going to church. I read something by Timothy Keller this last week, and it really interested me, and I thought he's right. He said this, he said, The early church was strikingly different from the culture. They were just very far apart. See, the pagan society was stingy with its money. They wouldn't give, and they were tight-fisted. The pagan society was stingy with its money, but promiscuous with its body. They had temple prostitutes, and doesn't matter. You can have whichever person or partner you want as long as you get away with it. And didn't matter. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. The pagan person would give money to nobody but everybody their body. The Christians had exact opposite. They came along and they were very, very stingy with their bodies. They would give their body to nobody except one married partner and him or her alone, but their money wherever. Where there was a need, I'll give. They held their money with open hands. Their bodies they protected. We have it as a society, exact opposite. I thought that was remarkable. God views us as holy, sacred parts of his temple, his body. And he wants us to live holy lives, generous, giving of ourselves, our talents, our time, our energy, our resources. There is no plan B in this. Honest, faithful, loyal, devoted, and committed to God. And in the topic of marriage, let's go to the next slide here, the last part of verse 16. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You've wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he's pleased with them. You've wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? 
You know, they're gotten to the point, you know what, what does it matter? What difference does it make? The, the unbeliever and the believer all are the same, but well, they were living like the unbeliever. How could it be different? All the relativity, the lifestyle choices, the beliefs, the choices, all the same. They were not willing or ready, willing or ready to accept responsibility. So let's bring this to a close this morning. God was displeased with his people because they were giving him scraps, leftovers of whatever it was they brought him. Whether it was time, all we'll do it when we get there. When we feel like it. If we have time, which may or may not happen. And when they would give, they would, you know what, well, what I don't need the leftover and this, what, what, what the governor wouldn't even accept that they would give to God. What they have no use for or little use for. And then on top of that, they embraced the culture in which they lived, accepted it as part of their normal living, and became part of it. That is still the problem. I know this morning there may be people here who find fault with what I've just said, and that's okay. Please read this passage over for yourself. Read all four chapters. Then read the whole, read the whole book of Malachi. Then go home and then in your home, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You see the similarities. Compare the two. They were under a curse because they were not single-mindedly focused and loyal to God. Is God pleased with our worship? Worship is not just, it's part of it. It's not just sitting in Sunday morning in church. It's the whole of like, what do we do in our spare time? With our resources, with our energy, with our talents. Are we giving God our best? Do we trust God enough that we'll open our hands, allow Him to use what we have, what He's blessed us with for His, for His glory? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly taught us where to put our trust, not in our stuff or in this life. It comes down to a matter of the heart. And how we handle, how we deal, how we position ourselves with the things we have. Satan will always come with a temptation. Ah, that's good enough. Don't worry about it. You know, you need actually, you, you, need, you need to be richer. You, you, you need to be richer. You'll always do that. Truth is, God may have in mind to make you rich, who knows? Or maybe not. Or maybe like our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. For some of you, maybe you've never looked at it this way. But it doesn't matter how you've looked at it. What matters is how God looks at it. Unless our views line up with God's views, our views are wrong. This whole concept, this whole principle of surrendering ourselves to God and giving God our, ourselves to God means everything. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says very clearly, we won't read that now, but we're commanded to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And that means our time, means our wallets, our marriages, our energy, our talents, our skills. Everything is wrapped up in that. Let me encourage all of us this morning to take inventory, to take stock, and ask God, Lord, where do I stand in relationship to you? Am I surrendered enough to you that you can use me? That you can use what you've blessed me with? Is what I have available for you to use? Or am I holding on? Am I stingy? 
It doesn't matter how rich we are, how poor we are. The amount is not the issue here. The dedication and the loyalty is. God clearly tells us it's not going to be an easy journey, but it's a call for us to be faithful. I want to continue this sermon next Sunday. I don't mean to scare anybody off, but the only way to follow Christ is to do inventory and take stock of our own hearts and self-evaluation, self-examination. See where we stand. Repent of where we've fallen. Come back to him and serve with joy and loyalty and enjoy the blessings. Let's pray. Lord, we're mindful that some of the teachings in your word are awfully hard. Makes one want to ask the question, why is it even in there? Why is that in the Bible? But it's there for a reason, for us to look, for us to read, and for us to evaluate where do we stand. And looking at the culture today, Lord, we have an awful long way to go to be back where we need to be as a culture. But you start with your church the first. That's where you start. And so as believers, each one of us individually, help us to take inventory of our lives. Are we faithful? Have we been faithful in our giving, of our time, of ourselves, our resources, the way we worship, the way we treat other people? Have we been faithful? And Lord, forgive us where we have not been and help us to become faithful. In your name we pray. Amen.